It's a great promise there in Psalm 145. I don't know if you noticed it. Uh, one, of my, one of the promises that I cherish, and I hope we all should cherish, uh, it's, it's the Lord is near to those who call upon him, to those who call upon him in truth. And it just strikes me, uh, as, as we read through the Old Testament, uh, and you see the, the children of Israel being so rebellious and so idolatrous and so, so many things, uh, it just really doesn't take much uh, for, for someone to call out to God, and God just comes roaring in answer to that. And it just, it serves to remind us that the problem between God and man is not on God's side, it's on our side. And God is more willing to save, God is more willing to answer uh, than human beings are to ask for salvation and to ask for help. So, uh, I just, I love that, I love that psalm and that, that particular promise as well. Open your Bibles to John chapter 12, and we're going to talk about the triumphal entry this morning. Let me read it. It's not a very long passage, and I'm going to maybe take it from a little bit of a different perspective than, since it's not, we're not in the context of, of Passion Week or, or uh, Easter, we're going to take it in a little bit of a different direction this morning. Let me read it for you. Chapter 12, verse 9. When the, Lord, well, I'm sorry, when the Lord's crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And the Lord found, and Jesus found, a young donkey and sat on it, for it is written, Fear not, the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So I had a Zoom conversation. This is this new Zoom world. I'm reconnecting with old friends because now we, we can all Zoom with each other. Uh, he actually used to try to like FaceTime me and, and uh, what, was the, what was the other one before it was Zoom? Um, Skype, he always wanted to Skype, you know, and I, I don't understand these things, but now I do. Uh, so he lives in Estonia. I, I don't know if you know where Estonia is, it's way up north just uh, south of the Baltic Sea, underneath Finland. Looks like a little, little short boat ride to Helsinki. So we were talking, it was about 2.30 in the afternoon my time, it was 9.30 at night his time, and I could see out the window, and it was bright sky, and his kids were out there playing. And I said, does this make you crazy? Does this like, you know, throw off your body clock? And he was like, no. He was like, we live in darkness for so much of the year. He's like, we love this. He's like, he said, you know, by, by June, he said, it, it pretty much never gets dark up there. And that just sort of blows my mind. But he said, man, he said, December when it's just dark all the time, that's just the worst. 
So I met Teo in Chicago. I've mentioned him before. He grew up in Romania. He grew up under uh, communism. His parents were Christians. They suffered under that regime. That was Ceausescu's regime, regime if you remember. I went to Romania. Um, I went twice. Right, uh, the second time I went, I went right before I moved back to Savannah. And at that time, Teo moved back to Romania, and then he met a woman from Estonia, and she was finishing medical school, and so he moved up to Estonia, and he's been there doing ministry ever since. I love to tell the story about how I first met Teo. I'm going somewhere with all this, I promise. Um, but he came into my office. I was a youth minister in the Chicago area. He was a student at Moody. And so he came into my office. He wanted to talk about serving in the youth ministry, which I'm, you know, always skeptical of. And he had kind of long hair spiked straight up. I mean, like, not just spiky, like, like wavy spiked, like way up. And he had this, you know, Romanian accent. And I, you know, I'm like, what is this guy? <laughs> you know, like, what is, you know, and I, I'm, I'm skeptical, you know. I mean, I mean I'll be honest. Like, I, I judged on appearance. I was like, I don't know. This is not going to go well. And we started talking, and we were, we just, like, in that conversation, we were connected. And he is a leader. Um, I, I was amazed as he talked about discipleship and, and why he wanted to be involved in youth ministry and how he wanted to disciple um, kids. I was, I was amazed. At one point, I was like, where did you learn all of this? And I, I won't even try to do his accent, but he was like, I, I read the Bible, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. So, so we've known each other um, ever since then. Um, he is the pastor of a church plant in Estonia. He's, he's been a part of five... Um, church plants there in Estonia, and he also is a part of an organization called M4, um, that they're in 26 different countries. And, and to tell you what a leader that Teo is, like, we finished our Zoom conversation, and he says, okay, let's plan on Zooming again in a few weeks, and here's a book I would like for you to read in the meantime, so that we can discuss it at that time. And I went, okay. Like, I mean, there's not a lot of people that can just say, let's just read this book. And I, and I, I'm like, I ordered it. It's, I, I ordered it immediately, and it's, it's in there on my desk. Um, so what I love about Teo and what I've always loved about Teo is that he is always strategizing about ministry. That's just how he thinks about ministry. This was true of him when I knew him 15 years ago. When we worked together, this is true of him today. He prays. Uh, he is committed to God's word, but he's always got a plan. So their church planting, they have four M's. It's called M4. I only, I only heard three. Um, but the master, you know, so we're, we're Christ-centered. Uh, mission, you know, their goal is to raise up Christians who are going to be uh, growing in Christ so that the third, the third goal, uh, multiplication. They want to raise up Christians who are able to raise up other Christians. They want to plant churches that are planting other churches. And that's, that's what they do. So their church has about 100 people. He said that was before COVID. By the way, he said a 300-person church in Estonia would be like a megachurch. Um, and interestingly, the 100 people they have in their fellowship are mostly new converts. So they're seeing people come to Christ and join the church uh, as, as new believers. So I want to ask you this morning, you're like, what in the world does this have to do with triumphal entry? Um, how does that idea of strategizing strike you? Strategizing about the gospel. Because 
you know, sometimes we're good, you know, sort of Calvinistic, Reformed people, we Protestants, we can be a little passive, you know, we can say, hey, God is going to save whom God's going to save, and if he brings somebody into my path and they ask me the gospel, that's great, but I'm not really, you know, he'll, he'll take care of that. But the gospel writers present Jesus as a strategist. Jesus, I would, I would suggest to you, yeah, he spends a lot of time in prayer, but Jesus has a plan. And for three and a half years, Jesus executes his plan. So Jesus is not just drifting through. You know, we've talked about this. He's a real human being. He's not just floating above it all. He's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. In fact, and we see this in the Gospels, especially in Mark, Jesus is always working towards his goal. He's always working towards his goal. At times, at times he's just trying to get alone with his disciples, and we've talked about this too. Jesus, does, he never lets his goal um, distract him from a person right in front of him. So as he's trying to accomplish his goal, if the Father brings somebody, he addresses, and that's how I think we should be as well, by the way. We don't, we don't have to be doing, you know, ministry all the time, no matter what, no rest. No, but So we are, we are trying to accomplish things in our church, in our families, as individuals. But when God brings a, a need to us, we see that as something that has come from the Father, just like Jesus does, and we address that need. So how did Jesus think about ministry? And that's, that's kind of what I want to get to today. So in the midst of that great Galilean ministry, and we've talked about this, it's what came to an end in John chapter 6 at the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus pairs up his disciples, and he sends them out two by two, and he gives them this counsel as they go. And I want to suggest to you that this is sort of how Jesus thinks about ministry. It's a familiar verse. You've heard it before. It's this one, Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves... So be shrewd as serpents. Must have printed that out in the New American Standard. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out. I am the one sending you out. And then he says, so, or therefore, I am the one sending you out. Therefore, and I think this connects what follows to Christ. So he's, he's saying, as you go, I'm sending you out. As you go, I want you to reflect the wisdom and the character of the one sending you, who is me, Jesus. So be wise as a serpent. means practical wisdom. Be prudent. Be sensible. But be harmless as doves. Be innocent, guileless, and sincere. So those who go out... To serve Christ should be wise and innocent. So, what I take this to mean is that Jesus is saying, he is saying to his disciples, he is practicing, and he would say to us, you go out and you strategize about ministry. You make plans, whether that's in your family or in your personal life or in a church, you strategize about ministry, but you don't allow any motive or method that would compromise your claim to be a representative of Jesus Christ. So we are to be practical and wise. 
but we are no, never to compromise. One, uh, one commentator said about this, you know, sadly, we most, mostly find that, that these two are inverted, and, and often Christians are guilty as serpents and stupid as doves, and we don't want to be that way by the grace of God. So Jesus had a plan. Okay, so I want to try to make the case for you this morning that what we see in John 12, and, and I'm going to need you to kind of think back as we've been tracking through John, what we see in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, is the culmination of, of Jesus' plan sort of coming together. And we're going we're gonna to tie some things together here that really go all the way back to chapter 7. It's easy to preach or read the gospel as just sort of a collection of stories. Oh, that was a good one. Oh, I love that one where he lowers the guy down through the roof. Oh, the one with the lady, the woman at the well. That one's great. But when we just see the gospel that way, the gospel's that way, we, we fail to recognize that the, the biblical author and the Holy Spirit, they were going somewhere. They're telling us something. And let me tell you something. This is, this is the end of the introduction, and then we're going to get into it. But let me say this, for those of you who may still be struggling with how does the sovereignty of God work with human responsibility, which should be all of us, by the way, I mean, we're all trying to work that out, I think this passage really shows us how God's sovereignty and human, human actions just sort of weave seamlessly, because what we see in the triumphal entry is this culmination of Jesus' work, the wicked intentions of men which play a big part in what's going to happen that week, and God's prophecy from the Old Testament. So we have Jesus acting, wicked men acting, and God's prophecy being fulfilled, and it all comes together seamlessly for God to accomplish His purposes perfectly and exactly how it was supposed to happen. So I hope this might inspire hope to start strategizing a little bit on our own and to see what God can do through us as a church. All right, so backing up to last week, the beginning of chapter 12, we're going to talk about Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem for just a minute. So Jesus arrived in Bethany. We saw this last week, six days before the Passover, and he spends that Sabbath with friends. Saturday night, they have a big party. That's where Mary anoints Jesus' feet with the spikenard. I've been saying spikenard all week long. I love that word, spikenard. And on Sunday, then, he gets up and he goes into Jerusalem, and all the people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But before he gets to the triumphal entry, Jesus does this final journey. So when we left Jesus in chapter 11, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, remember, he had sort of created this buzz. Everybody was talking. What's he going to do? The, the, the festival is coming. Is he going to come? We want to see. So Jesus is becoming a celebrity. If you didn't know about Jesus, you do now. They even know about Lazarus because the Pharisees want to kill Lazarus because he's a celebrity. So Jesus gets out of town, and he goes to a place called Ephraim. And we don't know exactly where that was. But it's, it's somewhere sort of out of reach of the Pharisees. And all the people are talking. Okay, so John, follow me here. John skips over that whole time, however long it was, a week, a few days. John goes directly from him being in Ephraim 
to being in Bethany six days before the Passover. But Matthew and Luke fill in a little bit of the gap. Don't turn there. You can look at it later. Let me just read one verse to you. This is Luke 17, 11. While he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Okay, this is the same trip. Daniel, can I have the, um, I got a map here for you. And let me show you what's going on. Because this will help you understand what Jesus is doing. So, not sure exactly where Ephraim is. So just, I know this is small, but I needed a lot of Israel. All right, so this is the Dead Sea. The Jordan River runs up. That's called the Jordan Rift right there. And that's the Sea of Galilee up there. Jerusalem is right here, somewhere in there. There's Bethlehem. There's Jerusalem right there. Uh, This is Samaria, okay? Uh, It says Ephraim right there. So let's say that's where Ephraim is. That's where he goes. Just leave that up there for a second, Daniel. Um, So they depart from Ephraim, and they begin to make their way to Jerusalem. And so from how it sounds, you would think that he just goes from Ephraim to Jerusalem, and that makes a lot of sense, just back down to Jerusalem. But what Luke says is that he passes through Samaria and Galilee, So apparently what Jesus does is rather than just hopping right down to Jerusalem from Ephraim, he goes back up through Samaria to Galilee, okay? And then what he's going to do in Galilee, so when you got ready to go to the Passover feast, they would make this pilgrimage journey and they would travel in large groups for the sake of safety. They didn't go through Samaria. This was a much easier way to go. But they didn't go through Samaria because, you know, Samaritans, all right? So what they would do is they would go out here and they would go down this plain, down the Jordan Rift, down to the Dead Sea, which is the lowest spot on the face of the earth. It's very hot, kind of miserable. That's kind of down through the wilderness. And then they would go in somewhere down here. Uh, Apparently, as we'll see, Jesus through Jericho, and then up to Jerusalem. So Jesus just sort of makes this circuit. So what he does is he goes and he gets into Galilee and he puts himself in the midst of all of these pilgrims who are traveling down to Jerusalem for the Passover. What does he do along the way? Does he just hide himself? Is he he still doing that thing where he's like, don't tell anybody who I am. Don't tell. He absolutely doesn't. He actually does the opposite. So during this trip, Jesus begins to act as messianically as he ever has in his whole ministry. Let me tell you some of the things that go on in this trip. So these are some famous stories that take place while he's coming down that Jordan Rift and he's about to go up to Jerusalem. He tells the parable of the talents, he predicts his soon coming, he meets the rich young ruler. He invites Zacchaeus to the faith in Jericho, and then he also heals the blind beggars there in Jericho. So Matthew says, in Matthew 19, he says this, he departed from Galilee and came down into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. All right, so Jesus is doing his Messiah thing in all of its parts. And all these people are traveling with him, and he's healing them. And then he heals 
a couple of blind men. And all that stuff and some other stuff happens, okay? And then he, he makes this turn into, goes up to Jerusalem. I know you can't see it. Bethel is, we already talked about this, right on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. So he's coming in from the west. Jesus stops in Bethel. That's what we looked at last week. All of those crowds keep going into Jerusalem. And they're all talking about the fact that Jesus is with them. So the crowd goes in. They've been seeing him healing people, healing blind people. They've heard about Lazarus and that multitude of pilgrims. They can't stop in Bethany. They have to keep going into Jerusalem because the Sabbath day is coming and Bethany is two miles away from Jerusalem, so that's more than a Sabbath day's journey. So they need to get into Jerusalem that night because that's where they're going to stay for the Sabbath. So Jesus just swerves off for the Sabbath and that's where he has the party that we talked about last week. All right, so just so you're clear, let me, let me tell you what has happened. Jesus has been traveling with a large group of pilgrims for the Passover. He's teaching and doing miracles. As they make their final approach into Jerusalem, he goes into Bethany. Everyone else goes into Jerusalem for the Sabbath, and they're saying, he's coming. We've been with him. We've been walking with him. He is coming. And so Jesus, having done this one final tour comes into Jerusalem, and Jesus, the one who healed Lazarus, is going to be there on Sunday morning. We've all been walking with him. We've seen him do miracles. He's right up in Bethany. We promise he's coming. So then, which brings us to our passage for this week, which begins in verse 9. When the large crowds of Jews learned that Jesus was there. So the Jews in Jerusalem hear that Jesus is in Bethany. They came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Okay, here we have these two streams coming together, and this is where, this is where we begin to see Jesus' plan unfold. This is the strategizing. Okay, number one, I'm going to take the second one first. Number one, we see the fury of the Jewish leadership. So if you have been tracking since John 7... Need you to put your thinking caps on for just a minute. In John chapter 6, we had the feeding of the 5,000, and that was the end of the Galilean ministry. And Jesus was quiet for a little while, and he was trying to get along with his disciples. And he goes up and he does the whole, Who do people say that I am? And he tells them for the first time that he's going to be crucified. In John 7, about six months before he dies, Jesus comes back to Jerusalem for that feast, that feast of tabernacles. Okay? And he starts getting into conflicts with the Pharisees. And he gets into a conflict in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9 with the blind man, chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. By the end of chapter 10, they want to stone him. So he has thoroughly made conflict with the Pharisees. Up until now, he has eluded their grasp. Why? Because his time had not come. 
They are so crazy with fury that they want to kill Lazarus too. They're like, let's just get both of them. Let's just both of them and eliminate them. This is deliberate. But beginning in verse 19 now, the time has come. Jesus is coming to be crucified. So that's the fury of the religious leaders that's been building. And I'm, I am arguing here that Jesus has been intentionally building that conflict with the Pharisees. On the other hand, we see the excitement of the crowds. So we see the buzz. We see that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. The crowd that was traveling with him comes into Jerusalem. They say that he's coming. He's traveling with us. And so after the Sabbath, what we see in verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So there's a large crowd that hears that's Sunday. So there's actually a crowd that goes up to Bethany because they want to see Jesus and Lazarus. They want to see them. So what you have in the triumphal entry, when you're like, how did that happen? You've got a crowd of people in Bethany. You've got a crowd of people in Jerusalem lining the streets, and we're going to see that in just a minute. And so this massive crowd comes together. Jerusalem is, is full of people. Okay, this is a key point. All right, back with me. We got two crowds, one in Bethany, one in Jerusalem. They are coming together. Jerusalem is full of people, hundreds of thousands of people. Most, if not all of them, are lining the roads, trying to wait to catch a glimpse of Jesus coming in. Have you ever wondered how Palm Sunday happened? Did Jesus just wander into town on a donkey, and everybody was like, ooh, there's Jesus, and they, they came out to see him. No, that's not what happened at all. Jesus himself carefully, deliberately orchestrated events so that on that day, a large percentage of the population came to welcome him. This is the single most dramatic and deliberate presentation of Jesus himself to Israel as their Messiah. And we see that in verses 13 through 15. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So this is that point that I mentioned earlier. This makes me excited. I hope I'm communicating. This makes me This is so cool to me. We have this, this coming together of these three streams. Jesus orchestrating what Jesus intended to orchestrate, the fury of the Pharisees, and the prophecies of the Old Testament all coming together for this moment. And then Jesus is going to be on a cross five days later. All right, let's pause there for just a second. I'll just go with this. I'm, I'm good with this.
Um, let's pause there for just a second, and I want you guys to see quickly these three prophetic streams that are coming together here. There's two that are mentioned explicitly here, and there's one that is implicit. So do me a favor, turn to Daniel. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. Because I, want to, I don't want to just show you how Jesus is working. I don't want to just show you how the Pharisees are working because we're, we're mad at them. But I want you to see how God is working in the midst of this. So Daniel 9, verse 24. Very enigmatic passage. An angel is speaking to Daniel. Daniel has been praying how much longer do we have to be in Babylon? And the angel comes and tells Daniel, well, you're not going to be in Babylon for much longer, but it's going to be a while before things get back to normal. Okay? Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Understand, 70 weeks is 70 weeks of years. All right? 70 times 7. Okay? Your people are the Jews. Your holy city is Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are decreed to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince... There shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks, remember, weeks of years, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. After 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. All right, so 69 weeks of years, 62 plus 7 is 483 years. The, the angel says to Daniel, Daniel, so the, 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 when the city is rebuilt, okay, that is recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter 2, King Artaxerxes sends back the Jews with a decree that they can rebuild their city. That happened on March 5th, 444 B.C., all right? We know when that happened. 62 weeks of years or 483 years will pass from that commandment until the Messiah, the Prince, comes. 483 years from that day puts you at March 29th, 33 AD. Jesus walked into Jerusalem on exactly the day that God promised that he would. 1,989 years ago. Jesus walked into Jerusalem. Psalm 118. I almost suggested that we sing the chorus this morning. You may have heard this chorus. This is the day. This is the day. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Song's a little misleading. This is the day. Yes, this is the day that the Lord has made. Of course it is. That day, March 29th, 33 A.D., that was the day that the Lord had made for the Messiah to come into his city. That was the day that they were all waiting on. Luke says that the Pharisees come to him that day and they say, you need to stop them with all this talking and all this crying out and all this praising. And he says, 
Guys, if I stop them, the very rocks will cry out. The Messiah is coming into his city. So that's the implicit prophecy that's fulfilled. The two explicit ones, the first one comes from Zechariah 9.9, and it's quoted here. In Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, let me tell you this. Jesus did not need a donkey, okay? Jesus was a very strong man. They walked everywhere. They had just pretty much walked straight uphill from Jerusalem, I mean, from Jericho to get to Jerusalem, okay? So Jesus was not riding on a donkey because he was tired of walking. Jesus was riding on a donkey to fulfill a prophecy in Zechariah 9, okay? Now, a lot of people want to say that this prophecy and Jesus' actions, they say, well, wasn't that so humble? Our Lord came in to Jerusalem. That was so humble. He came in riding on a donkey. Who rides on a donkey? Well, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the donkey was actually a royal means of transportation, okay? A king rode a donkey in peace. If a king came in a donkey, it meant that he was coming in peace when Absalom, go and look sometime at 2 Samuel 16, when Absalom tries to usurp David, he rides on a donkey. So there's no military apparatus. He's not coming to conquer. There's no army. He's coming as a peaceful king. The king, the Messiah, is coming into Jerusalem, and he's not bringing an army with him. Contrast that, by the way, with Revelation 19.11, when Jesus comes again, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. One sitting on it was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. When the king comes back, he's not going to be on a donkey. He's going to be on a horse, and he's going to be bringing armies with him. And then the third prophetic string, briefly, is from Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. These are the words that they cry out. They're waving palm branches. They're, they're taking off their, their coats and they're laying them as the king comes through on the donkey. This psalm was widely recognized. It was a messianic psalm. Every Israelite knew it by heart. Hosanna simply means Lord save now. Lord save us. Remember back in John 6, they wanted to make him king, and he left. Here in John 12, they say, Hosanna, and he lets them. He lets them. He lets them call him Messiah. There are three responses to the king's arrival. Verse 16, his disciple did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I think it's interesting. Everybody today, I don't know if you all noticed this, but everybody's talking about how everybody's making history. Like, this is history. We are watching history unfold. We're going to go and we're going to do this thing. Like, we're going to boycott this thing and it's going to be historic. It's probably not going to be historic. Like, most of the things that are happening today, people have probably forgotten in a few years. Things that are truly historic. Like, I just think, like, this is truly historic. Like, the Messiah is coming into town, and it's so interesting to me that John was like, 
yeah, and the guys, they kind of didn't know what was going on when it was happening. I mean, when Jesus rose from the dead, they figured it out. I, I just think it's, it's so indicative of us as human beings. Like, we think we know what's important. We're like, that's a huge deal. And it's like, in, in God's providence, it's not that big of a deal. But this thing over here that God did, that's a big deal. This was a big deal. And the disciples, you know, kind of, they, they just, they didn't get it at the time. The crowds continue to seek him in verses 17 and 18. It says, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So you got crowds continuing to seek Jesus. The disciples are clueless. The crowds are seeking Jesus. And then the Pharisees despair. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are going, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're in despair. It's all over the place in this passage. People are saying things that they don't understand the importance of. You know, like Mary is anointing his, his feet with burial. She doesn't know he's going to die. And earlier, remember Caiaphas said, you know, it is right that one man be sacrificed for the good of the whole nation. And it says he didn't know what he was saying. I don't think they know what they're saying here, but hey, the Lord, the world really has gone after him because just a quick preview of next week, look at verse 20, the very next verse, and I, I, this can't be an accident. Now, among those who went up to Jerusalem at the feast were some Greeks. It's one of those, another one of those situations. The Pharisees, I mean, they don't even know how much they don't know, but they say it right. The world has gone after him. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 19. This is verses 42 through 44. Just, just listen. Enjoy this. Or let it convict your heart. Now as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone upon the other because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is not fooled by the responses of the crowds. He saw the reception for exactly what it was. He knows that the religious leaders are conspiring to kill him and that they're gonna lead this same crowd that's calling him king to call for his crucifixion five days later. Jerusalem does fall in 70 AD. Every stone is taken apart in the temple. That day, 1,989 years ago, this past March, was the day that Jesus came and he presented himself to the Jewish people. And, and I think it was a real presentation. I think it was a real presentation. I think, you know, it's not that God was saying, well, I'm going to send you into town that day, but you're not really going to do it because I've got other plans. I think it was a real presentation and a real rejection. And then they were judged. Jesus wept over the city. If you're not a Christian today, just like Jesus says to the city of Jerusalem, these are the things that make for peace. These are the things that make for peace for peace. The upheaval in your life can be redeemed by this king. But just like ancient Jerusalem, the day will come when the king's patience will run out. All right. 
So what does all this have to do with serpents and doves? What I've tried to do this morning is to make the case to you that Jesus had a plan. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was not just drifting through. His plan, God the Father's purposes, and even the motives and actions of wicked men are gloriously weaved together to bring about salvation. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that we have the mind of Christ, all right? When you hear that, don't hear, well, we just have the ability to think really highfalutin spiritual thoughts. That's not what it means to have the mind of Christ. Jesus commanded his disciples to go in his name as his representatives, acting shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. And I would tell you that he has given all of us the ability to prayerfully plan and strategize for ministry just like he did. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was a master minister. Like, he was perfect. He did it exactly right. He rested, he taught, he ministered, he served. You know, it's really easy to to pick certain stories from Jesus' life and say, you know, well, Jesus spent all his time with the poor. He spent some time with the poor, but he did other things as well. Well, Jesus spent all of his time with the worst of sinners. No, he didn't. Sometimes he spent time with his disciples. Sometimes he was just with his family. Well, Jesus spent all of his time teaching. No, he didn't. Sometimes he was healing. Sometimes he was resting. Sometimes he was ministering to the poor. Jesus spent all of his time criticizing the religious leaders. No, he didn't. He hung out with Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and probably others that we don't have recorded. So let's not make the mistake of trying to pigeonhole who Jesus is because of the things that we like about ministry. But let's look at Jesus' ministry, the perfect minister, and think about that. And then two things. First of all, in telling us to be wise as serpents, Jesus is calling us to plan and strategize so that we can make full use of every resource and opportunity that he has given us. We are supposed to plan for maximum fruitfulness, and also to be on guard against the enemy. And this should be personally, in our families, and in our church. And let me tell you, and I'm going to talk about this real quick at the end, but just, you know, you moms who are like, I don't really have time right now to be strategizing about anything but these people who live in my house. God has called you for this period of 10 or 20 years, your strategy is about ministering to the souls that God has put in your household, okay? So, so when I'm saying this, don't hear, you know, that you've got to get everybody ready for school and homeschool the kids or whatever you do, and, and, and then also, you know, strategize about how we're all going to reach Peru, all right? That is not what I'm saying. God the Father has given each one of us exactly the resources that we need to serve Him. We are free to strategize and plan within those resources to use them for His glory, I promise you I'm almost done with this George Mueller book, but here's another quote. Only the present moment is ours to serve the Lord, and tomorrow may never come. Money is really worth no more than it can be used to accomplish the Lord's work. Life is worth as much as it is spent in the Lord's service. We are managers of the resources that God has given us, 
as individuals, as families, as churches, and we need to be planning to use those resources for God's glory. Secondly, at the same time, we are called to be harmless as doves. So we need to take care that we never violate God's word because we are going to be held accountable. So the Lord has given us tremendous freedom as families and as churches, but God doesn't want us to try to accomplish his purposes in ways that he hasn't told us that we should do, okay? By the way, over the past year, I would say we've seen a lot of Christians trying to accomplish good things like racial reconciliation and help for the poor and protection against a disease in ways that compromise God's commands. The wisdom of the world always leads to chaos. Look at the fruit. If you're trying to minister and you're producing chaos all over the place, you might want to consider whether you're utilizing the wisdom of the world or the wisdom that comes from above. So what does all this have to do with a Zoom call to Estonia and Hope Bible Church? I want to invite you, the people of Hope Bible Church, to pray and strategize about how we would go out in his name and do the work that he has called us to do. Honestly, I'd love to see the Spirit excite some of you about the things that I'm talking about here this morning. So the Lord has given us as a church exactly what we need. We have exactly the people we need. We have exactly the money we need. We have exactly the time that we need. And we need to be praying about how we are going to invest those resources for the glory of God. The elders are praying, and I want you to pray too and read your Bible and then think, strategize. God, what have you given me the ability and the desire to do, individually and for us corporately as a church? I am praying that we would begin to see new converts through the ministry of hope. And by converts, I mean people who are not in churches right now, that are not believers. I am praying that we would baptize new believers by the end of the year. And by the way, I know some of you are asking about that, and we are talking about having a baptism service. But I want to see hope go beyond just the, like, wait and let's see if they come to us approach. What resources, relationships, and talents do we have among us that can be deployed for the sake of the glory of God in ministry? So we are coming up on three years old, and nobody could have planned for 2020, but that's what the Lord has for us. But I want you to know the elders of this church are talking about what it means to be moving forward in the fall of 2021, and I want you to join us. We are leaders, but we're a church and we do this together. And finally, this isn't about guilt. This isn't about I should be doing more. I hope you hear. You get to serve Christ with the resources that he has given you. What do you get to do? What has God given you and your talents and your resources that you can use for his glory and for the good of the people around you in Savannah. Let me pray. Father, I, I do thank you that you are a God who, you hear those who call to you. You hear those who call to you in, in need. You hear to those who call you 
in truth. And so we call out to you this morning asking you that you would bless us and we would be a church who are considering how we can use the resources that you've given us, most importantly, the people that you have given us for your glory and to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ here in Savannah, Georgia. And Father, we thank you for the example of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was a strategizer. We thank you that he trusted in you. God, just what a beautiful picture the triumphal entry is of you utilizing all the different streams that come together for your purposes. And Father, I just ask that you would let us be a part of that, even as we see your providence unfolding uh, as well around us. So we ask these things humbly in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.